Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone. Welcome everyone in the room who um, are unheard debate about the future of feminism. I'm Sally Chatterton. I'm the editor of Unheard. Um, uh, thank you for being here. We have Mary Harrington here, who is um, our, one of our much loved columnists um, and soon to be published author. You're Not very soon. Soonish. Soon. <laughs> um, it's a work in progress. We have Julie Bindle, a campaigner, uh, author, and another beloved contributor to Unheard. Hadley Freeman, um, award-winning columnist, <laughs> as of last night. And I keep on asking her to write for us, and maybe one day she will. Um, well, uh, we're here to talk about the future of feminism. Um, it feels like it's a really interesting fracture point at the moment um, in the lifespan of the movement, which has been quite turbulent, I think we could agree. Um, and sort of discussing, uh, going forward what it means to be a woman in the world today really a great deal of the feminist debate at the moment obviously is uh, freighted with the the trans issue uh, and it's interesting that the women that we have here are all from different points on the socio-political spectrum but who are all united really on that issue um, but we're not really here to talk about that we're to talk about this uh, <laughs> subtext um, that alignment and what that alignment um, we want to explore that alignment uh, and the single point of agreement what that means for feminism going forward um, and also you know on a more practical point I suppose you know I've got a 12 year old daughter and um, whether feminism uh, will be relevant to her in her future as well because um, she knows that she can be what she wants now but you know she can also be who she wants which I think is an interesting idea but without further ado I think we should probably start I don't know with you Mary possibly I'm not going to try and summarize what that means to me except that it's meant a lot of different things over the course of my life um, from the point where I thought it was unfair that my mum had to do all the dishes when I was about 12 and my brothers would just leave the table um, and, and read Simone de Beauvoir and then got really angry and stayed really <laughs> angry for a long time. Um, to more recently, um, when I re-evaluated a lot of things, especially in the light of having a daughter myself, she's now five, um, and in the course of which I became radicalised by Mumsnet. Um, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, nobody actually admits to that. But, you know, Mumsnet introduced me to, into a world of discussion and, you know, the, the coruscating realities of being a woman and a mother in the contemporary world, including some of the more live political issues, which we've agreed that we're not going to discuss directly today. But, you know, that was... Um, and which, which, which brought me a full 180 degrees from being a... Eventually, in, uh, over a long period of time, from being a vociferous quota of... An, an enthusiastic quota of Judith Butler, <coughs> all the way to my, my views, which are in the public domain now, which are some distance from there. Um, what do I, where do I think we go from here? I think for me, there are two, that there are, there are two parts to that. Um, one part of that is that I think you know, where we are um, with the question of you know, what does the women's movement mean is 
um, in my view, AI and biotech changes everything about what feminism is for and what it actually means in policy terms. And that's, that's an enormous proposition, which I'm, I'm, I'll argue in a really untidy way because it's the subject of the book, which I'm in the middle of writing. And secondly, that um, in my view, um, the, whole, the whole question of women's liberation and women's rights is to a huge extent determined by the material context. That, that women happen to find ourselves in. You know, a huge amount of women's, women's rights as such emerges out of changes in the way house, households were organized in the, under the Industrial Revolution. Um, so as we move out of the Industrial Revolution into the digital age, um, I think a lot of those questions are thrown right up in the air again. Um, and, you know, in, in gloomier moments, I think what, it, what the future of feminism will look like for my daughter, Sally, or yours, um, probably depends on what kind of apocalypse we're going to get. Um, whether it's going to be an, an ecological one where we all live in mud huts again, or whether it's going to be the sort of techno-dystopian one where we all end up being slaves to the machine. Or hopefully it's not going to be either of those, but in, 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 in either of those cases, in either of those sort of nightmare scenarios, um, the, the implications for women will be, will be very different. You know, hopefully we won't get both of them at once because then we're just screwed. So with, without further ado, I'm going to pass on to someone more upbeat than me. <laughs> Julie, left-wing socialist, quite a different political stable from Mary. Um, <clears throat> nor a mother. And so what does feminism sort of mean? Well, feminism first and foremost means that we have to have a movement that benefits all women and we have to start at the very bottom and not at the elite, <clears throat> not have it played out within elite institutions and refuse to have an agenda set by overprivileged, um, super-educated um, women and men who will decide whatever their individual needs and identities are and work towards benefits for them. So if feminism isn't touching working class women, for example, then it's not effective. And the reason why I mention class, <coughs> um, without adding the usual kind of trotted out demographics that you usually then hear after that, is because I do actually think that for Black, of colour and white women, class is an essential issue right now that feminism has lost its grip on. And the reason why, and I need to think about language because I'm sick of calling the liberal feminist feminist. So I need to actually find a way to describe these women and the men that identify as feminists without calling them feminists because it gives them an authority and it means that they can decide what our movement is and what feminism is without actually being a part of it and working against it, actively against it. But the good news is that feminism is vibrant and it is moving forward because women have had enough. We've always had enough, but we've <laughs> particularly had enough now. And the only reason for me that the, the whole issue about transgender ideology is even on my radar <laughs> is because it threatens women's autonomous organising and the creation of, and I hate to use this term because it's been bastardised, safe spaces, <laughs> that we actually built from nothing through the 60s and 70s as a response to male violence. The only reason I care about this is because of the threat to our sex-based rights because of male violence. If we had no male violence, 
I would not care at all seeing a bit of gristle hanging down between a person's legs in a changing room. Sorry, I haven't seen one for a very, very, very long time, but I assume that they remain the same aesthetically, right? You know, feminism is not an essentialist movement. We are not biologically determined. We are the opposite of that. While men are still raping and killing us, we have to have a movement that, first and foremost, directly challenges men's violence. To do that, we have to see men as a sex class. Not that every single man is a baddie and not that every single woman is a victim, but there is a sex class and there is a sex class of women. And if we don't recognize that, we will continue to arse around with individual identities and highly privileged women setting the agenda and that can't be allowed to continue. Hadley, where are you coming from? Um, well, I was lucky enough to grow up in a very easy circumstances where I didn't really have to think about my rights at all. And it wasn't until the university I thought about feminism at all when a, a very uh, surprisingly forward-thinking tutor suggested I read people like Andrea Dworkin and Shulamit Firestone, Audre Lorde. And I, so I thought of it always as a collective movement, that it was about the collective, the, you know, the improving the lives of women in general. Then we get to about 2000s, 2010, and it was that era of individual empowerment. And suddenly there was this idea that feminism was about whatever made individual women feel good. So waxing your legs was a feminist thing because it made you feel confident. Shopping for shoes was a feminist statement. And this felt very divorced from how I thought of it. It just seemed quite self-serving, but you know, what did I know? I was just 20 something working on the fashion desk of all places at the Guardian. So it wasn't like I was about to storm the barricades about it. <laughs> and then in 2014, there was an article in the New Yorker by Michelle Goldberg about the uh, cancellation of the Michigan Women's Fest because there was a trans woman at the festival who wanted to attend a group for rape survivors. And some of the women at the festival objected to this. And the article, I mean, you look back at it now and it's so moderate and balanced. The article sparked a lot of angry commentary, as you can imagine, on Twitter. This was really before gender ideology was taking off. But I read that article and it just made no sense to me. I couldn't even understand this. And that's when I really began thinking more about women's rights and women's ability to define themselves. Soon after that, I had my first two children, my twins, and like a lot of women, particularly the women's, women on uh, Mumsnet, that is when a lot of women began to think about biological oppression in their lives, reproductive, reproductive oppression, how their lives are dictated by their biology and how for, I think, most women, their concept of what being a woman is, is based entirely on their biology. You know, you, you menstruate, you either do or don't have children, you do or don't have an abortion, you go through menopause at some point, and how that affects your life. And I was also increasingly thinking about gender roles because I was, you know, when I grew up, I was a very feminine little girl. Um, this actually worked against me in a lot of ways. I've written in the paper a bit about how I had an eating disorder for a long time as a teenager. I was in lots of different psychiatric hospitals. And so much of eating disorders, I mean, there's a reason eating disorders largely affect girls. 90% of anorexics at least are, 90% of anorexic at least are girls or women, is because of gender oppression, is because of femininity, this idea that you're supposed to be small, this idea that you're supposed to be good, and this idea that becoming a woman means being sexualized. So that, that's why anorexia mainly affects adolescence. It always comes on in adolescence. It's a fear of becoming women. And so I was thinking more about those two things, the kind of the gender oppression on women and the biological oppression on women, and suddenly gender ideology took off. Um, 
And I understood, and I still understand why there are a lot of young people. First of all, I just want to say I understand why, you know, people don't want to talk about the trans debate, as they call it. I don't think of it as a trans debate. I don't have any concerns whatsoever how trans people live their lives. Um, I think of it as a gender debate, which is about how women define themselves. And this is how women, this is why women get so angry about this. Because what gender ideology is saying is saying that if you're feminine, you're a woman. If you're masculine, you're a boy. Um, and I understand why young people have kind of latched onto this and why I know lots of young people who say, I don't feel like a woman, I, I'm, therefore I'm now a boy. But to me, this is just looking at it the wrong way around. This is saying that your body is your personality, which is what eating disorders is saying as well. My body is me. Your body is just your biological casing. You are not supposed to be defined by it. You're not supposed to be restrained by it. And you're not supposed to be living your life by what other people tell you a man and, or a woman is supposed to look like or be. You know, a woman is just your biology. You can be and look anything within that. Mm. And that's why I find gender ideology so maddening, because to me it is regressive. It is encouraging eating disorders, I think, in a lot of ways, because it's telling people your body is you. Your body is your personality. Rather than your body is just your body. You, as a woman, you can be... That's an umbrella term. You can do and look at anything the way you like. Look at the four of us. We all look very differently and we behave very differently. You are not locked into a certain life just because you're a woman. I mean, this is not the 19th century. And this viewpoint made me increasingly isolated among my colleagues, among my, what I thought of as my political bedfellows, and in some cases, my friends. And that, in turn, made me angrier because I just couldn't understand what seemed so obvious to, to me, that you cannot change sex. You can identify however you want, but sex is a lived reality. And for women, their sex defines a lot of their lives. And as Julie said, as long as men are raping and killing us, and you know, for women, the biggest threat is violence, against, violence from a man then we cannot identify out of that. Oof. And it's a lie to be telling girls, you can identify out of FGM, you can identify mm-hmm. out of these gender roles that you're put into. By subscribing to gender ideology, you're validating them. And yeah. I find that very sad. But how do you change that? Given that you know, our daughters are swimming in these waters in which you know, they are allowed to well, choose who they want to be. Well, yes, I mean, I try to, I mean, it's very hard. And I do try to talk to young people. My children are younger than, than yours, Sally, and I've got six-year-old twin boys and a two-year-old girl. And my boys always say things to me like, you know, mommy, I want to wear a dress, but it's for girls. And I always say to them, wear a dress. Who cares? You're a boy. I mean, that is the thing. When, you, when we read articles from parents, when I read articles from parents who say that their seven-year-old is trans, their you know, six-year-old is trans, it's all, they always include statements like, well, so my child, when they were, you know, when they were about three, they wanted to play with boy toys. They wanted to play with girl <coughs> toys. And I really believe that a large reason why this gender ideology has taken off is because there's been such a hardening in, in the toy market of the way things are marketed. When you look at 70s toy adverts, there's not this gendered marketing. This is for boys. This is for girls. You know, cleaning sets were marketed to boys. You know, cars were marketed to girls. Suddenly in the 80s and 90s, you look on the Disney website, it's this is for girls and this is for boys. And that is not from some nefarious, you know, gender plot. That's just capitalism. That's just mm-hmm. trying to make more money. Here's the girl's aisle. Here's the boy's aisle. If you have a girl baby, you have to buy a pink onesie. If you have a boy baby, you then have to buy a blue onesie. And I think gender, the, these gender roles are more strict now. And girls are growing up with this idea that, you know, pink, if, you, if you're a girl, you have to like princesses. If you're a boy, you have to like soldiers. And I don't think that was as true for kids growing up in the 70s and 80s. I think we could probably bring you in here, Mary, couldn't we? Because I, you were telling me about what happened this Christmas at your house with a... 
your daughter and the Disney princess. <laughs> I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm a lot more horizontal than I ever expected to be in my, 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 my strident feminist years about Disney princesses. You know, in the grand scheme of things, they're fairly innocuous. Um, a, few, a few thoughts on the, um, on the sex roles and capitalism front, though, um, which is it's something I've sort of rummaged around in a bit in my writing and which I find really interesting because uh, I was looking into <coughs> studies on gender stereotypes um, and egalitarianism and stumbled on the counterintuitive fact that the more egalitarian things become in a material sense in a society, the more pronounced um, people's desire um, to identify as in a gendered way becomes. So in a sense, um, in, in countries where, in, in countries where the, there is actually, the, it's materially less equal between men and women, um, you get more women going into engineering and science, for example. Um, in the, which is not really the way around you'd expect it to be, but people people are much more much more committed to the the kind of imaginary sense of themselves as either either a man or a woman um, in in situations where actually it doesn't matter very much. Um, and if if that's if that holds, if that's accurate, um, then what it would suggest is the more materially egalitarian our society gets, the more we're going to end up sliding around in this business of identity. Because uh, it's a decadent in, yes. belief, basically. right? Because because it's a decadent belief. Um, you know, and one, once you get so, so, so in a sense, you start with, you know, sex roles being kind of obligatory in a pre-modern society. Then you get to a point where there's a bit more flexibility and people start saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't have to do just this because I'm a man or just this because I'm a woman. And then you get right out to this sort of hypermodern scenario <coughs> that we're in at the moment, where in fact, materially, if you work in the knowledge economy, it doesn't really matter. It completely doesn't matter what sex you are. So in practice, you kind of could. Just if, if you're a Zoom class person anyway, it kind of doesn't matter. You know, you can identify as an attack helicopter and it really doesn't affect your ability to do your job. Um, but, you know, as Julie rightly and regularly points out, that doesn't hold all the way down the economic food chain. And the, the further down the social class ladder you go, the more brutally sexed mm -hmm. your life still remains. Totally. You know, and if you're yeah. right at the top of the food chain, you really can identify as an attack helicopter. Mm -hmm. Down at the bottom, in prisons or in rape shelters or in, any, or in, the home, yeah. or in homeless shelters, then it's a completely different ballgame. So an, ide an ideology which percolates down from the top, you know, fairly sort of, un you know, by people who probably just lack the imagination to, 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 to consider what life is like in somebody else's circumstances, is ending up having these mm. utterly pernicious effects on, on people who are just in a different economic situation, a material situation. Yeah, and the, the assumptions that working class, um, uneducated past school people are somehow ignorant about feminist issues because they might not consume feminist theory is a travesty because of course the women's movement was built on activism and that meant <clears throat> grassroots activism where you are visible and that this is where I think we need to go next. We need to be seen rather than theorizing. The theory is great, you know, theory is really important, but we've got to get back to the traditions of being loud and visible. And not just online. Online is really important and it's enabled so many women, young women in particular, to, to get together and talk to each other without being screamed at by the, the bearded heads of feminist societies. <laughs> but <laughs> but if, if, you, if you look back at how working class women, where I'm from, in the northeast of, of England, working class women are actually very, of all stripes, are actually very, very well aware of multiple oppressions that face other women because they rub shoulders on the factory floor 
um, in the workplace where everyone's seen as subservient by the bosses and by other women, university and above educated women. So it's actually in your face, if you're a white working class woman, what's happening to the black women in that workspace. It, you might not do anything about it. You might, you might still be racist. You might not care enough. But trust me when I tell you, there is that knowledge about it. And similarly, um, when, when we look at who traditionally from the 1970s, when I was growing up onwards, where interrelationships, multiracial relationships, where mixed race children are being raised and are born. That wasn't with the upper middle classes, the white upper middle classes, trust me. No, 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 they marry each other. And so this absolute bastardization by the upper middle classes of the term intersectionality makes me so very angry because they've taken every single bit of politics out of it and made it about involving very wealthy, trans-identified men and women who are heterosexual and call themselves they, them. And I'm trying to think of who. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what I mean. And so like, you know, both Mary and Adley have said, you have to base women's oppression and the fight against that oppression on what we know about material reality. And it is, of course, our biology, but it's also about the circumstances in which we find ourselves when we are in fear of male violence and when we experience male violence. And it's always worse for the women at the bottom of the social mm. ladder, without question. But it doesn't mean that women with the highest status in society are excluded from this. That is the thing about male violence and the fear of it. It's a great leveller. And that's where my feminism is situated, because it is the one thing that unites women and girls on the planet. And it is the only thing. And, you know, we say these things like, yes, vast numbers of women, 68% of women have had some sort of sexual assault. 90% of women have been catcalled. One in six children, this is something I heard on LBC the other day, have experienced some sort of unwanted sexual contact. Sorry, everyone. Way too low, those figures. We're talking about the vast majority of females. And I'm afraid... We all know it in this room. So that's where the fight has to be, in my view. Where do you think the fight fits in, Adley? Well, I think there's two problems at the moment. First is that feminism has become such an individualist movement as opposed to a collective movement. It's about what makes people feel good and not wanting to give things up and this idea of not being for the greater good. And the other issue is that feminism has always had, it's got a very teenage attitude towards rebelling against its mother. So every wave of feminism is rejecting the one before. Um, and also, every, particularly at the moment, this kind of revulsion of older women. There is so much ageism that I see now among younger women, which I find quite shocking and also incredibly Freudian. Um, the disdain that I see expressed about, for example, Mumsnet, you know, I think largely because it's got the word mum in it. Um, and this disgust that I see from younger women about when women talk about things like breastfeeding, and pregnancy, childbirth, all this. This is the boring stuff, boring, you know, boring stuff that your mum talks about. Um, women who are older, and I'm not just saying this as someone who is now older, but women who are older will have experienced lots of different things. Uh, 20-somethings don't invent sex. Um, and this is a problem. I think it, this also lies behind the kind of rejection, this kind of embrace of gender ideology. I think 
a lot of us here who are perhaps older than 35, 40, who know younger women can see that in a way this um, sort of evangelism that some of them have about gender ideology is a way of dividing between the young ones and the old ones. You know, it, mm -hmm. people go on about it's a generational divide as though, the generation, as though that means that the young people are so much more forward thinking. It's, it's not that. I, I understand it. Younger people want to have a civil rights fight of their own. Their mothers had gay rights fight. Their grandmothers had the civil rights fight. They want to have a fight. And of course, for the younger people now, the fight really is about the environment. And but fighting for plants, that doesn't, it's not quite as fun if it's not for people. So then you bring in the people. And it's a great way of telling your mom off. God, mom, you're so bigoted. God, mom, you're committing wrong think. Um, and in the end, it's, it's not helpful for, young, for girls to grow up thinking that being a girl means you have to behave a certain way and that you can identify out of your biology because neither of those things is true. You're, bi you're stuck with your biology, but you can behave however you want. Um, and I think those are really big things that feminism needs to address. And I, I struggle to think how I've written a book that's coming out next year and I'm already fighting with editors and stuff about how strong I can go in on this. So <laughs> it's, it's a fear. The other problem is this fear that corporations have of addressing this, this fear that corporations have of alienating 20-somethings on Twitter. I find this incredibly frustrating. When I was 20-something, nobody listened to me. And now suddenly I'm supposed to be enthralled to them. Like, where's my time? I missed it somehow. Now I'm just a passe middle-aged person. I thought being 40 was when people listened to me. It's interesting what you say about mothering being central to your fem feminism, because it's, it's the same with you, Mary, isn't it? You've written about it, it several times. And I wonder what happens then if that then is erased. If mothering gets written out of feminism, I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm probably about to get burned at the stake. Cause <laughs> I'm going to throw out a hypothesis which I've been playing with for a little while. I, re I, need to, I need to do the research on this to see whether the data actually stacks because it's just a gut, it's a hunch at the moment. But one of the, one of the possibilities I've been playing with, I, I really ought to just pitch this to you, Sally, in private rather than doing it in a room full of people. <laughs> but witnesses, go. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, here goes. Does this mean um, I can't say no? So I've been, <laughs> I've been wondering for a long time about the sheer volume and bitterness of mother hatred. Mm. And it's not not just mother hate. I mean, what, what you talk about is very palpable to me. The disgust about breastfeeding, the disgust about, you know, the embodied, really visceral nature of uh, mothering and gestation and birth and all of that. Um, but also, but, but it's, it's not just that. There's an antinatalism that comes, that, that, that's associated with that. But I mean, I hear particularly from 20-something friends who say that all the women they know just don't want to have kids. They're just revolted by the idea. Um, that, that somehow, some, somehow it, it's as though there's a collective decision has been taken by at least some um, of the generation or so un, younger than me. Um, let the, let's just draw a line under this. We're not going to do this anymore. Um, a sort of collective human um, death wish or something. And I've been thinking, where does that come from? Where is that anger coming from? Where's that fury and loathing coming from that seems particularly directed against mothers and this real sort of vengeful desire to just annihilate mothers and motherhood and mothering? Um, you know, the, the, the venom that gets directed at mum's net, the venom that gets directed at quote-unquote Karens, you know, yes. middle-aged mummy types. Um, it all, I think, why, why do people hate mums so much? And, and, and this is where I get burned at the stake. I'm thinking the generation that's now old enough to be making their voices heard in this way is probably also the first generation that was sent en masse to nurseries from, from a pre-one-year-old. Pre um, and if they, and is it, is it possible that having just collectively, you know, brought, brought an, a, a generation up in an institutional setting, 
that they're just really fucking angry with their mothers in, a, in such a pre-verbal sense. Excuse my language, I'm sorry. But, you know, in, at such an inarticulate level that it's coming out in this kind of drive to just annihilate mothering. I have, a, I have an alternative theory, which is that this... So do I, no. just for the record. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. Come forth with your flaming torch. It, it, it's not angry. I think the 20-somethings now are the generation who don't have any money to buy their own place. And they're actually stuck at home. And they are so <laughs> fucked off yeah. with their parents, with this situation. And I don't blame them. I honestly don't. And girls rebel against their mothers. They do. They do. And that is the women that we're hearing from. That's the young women. And they are grossed out by it. And, I, and when I hear young women talking about, you know, oh, leaky boobs and oh, like the, you know, oh, the school run moms and that kind of thing. But the, what I'm hearing them say is how pissed off they are with their own mothers. And what they're also saying is like in Gone Girl, like they're not going to be the cool, they're not going to be like a normal woman. They're a cool woman. Mm -hmm. They're not mm -hmm. like their boring mom. They're the cool ones. And you know what? There will come a point when suddenly they get pregnant and they realize what their moms went through and it's a whole different story. But that's what it just seems to me. It's just an arrested development of teenage rebellion. How do you feel about that, Tim? Um, yeah, I agree with Hadley. I disagree with Mary. I, I think that there's a... <laughs> uh, there's merit in your argument because obviously there is a hatred towards mothers. And I've seen it. I, I don't know if you saw the, the lovely very nice bedtime reading piece I did for Unheard on the breast milk trade recently. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, you know, you, you find an awful lot of hatred through that. And I, want, I really, tonight at some stage, want to talk about commercial surrogacy mm. and prostitution uh, as well. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but I think Mary's right. There is a hatred towards mothers. I think that's, that's misogyny and it comes in, in different forms. Um, as a, you know, 59-year-old um, middle-class living, not origin, you'll note, uh, North Londoner, who's been an out lesbian since I was in my teens, I feel more stigmatised amongst by my peers for choosing happily not to have children than I do being a lesbian. Hmm. There's something in that that we need to look at. I am the first and probably last person that was banned from Starbucks in Crouch End. Um, <laughs> 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 It was a very early no-platforming experience <laughs> in my life. And it was actually two weeks before I wrote the article that was published in 2004 mm -hmm. that got me into all that trouble. So it wasn't about that. But I think for feminists, motherhood has always been attention because mm. I would argue it's not our hatred of, of mothers. And obviously, Mary, you weren't talking about feminist hatred of mothers. But there is a massive row, always, it's been constant, about the, the kind of bratish behaviour that some extremely privileged parents encourage in their children. <laughs> in Crouch End, for example, where, <laughs> where, where, where mother hatred started. <laughs> no, but it, it, it is that, that there's a particular constituent um, of parents, but, of, but the mothers are the more visible and they do most of the work. I will never forget being with a, a media colleague in Crouch End in the Starbucks that I was subsequently banned from, where she <laughs> noted how multi-ethnic Crouch End was because there were so many Filipino women around. Uh. You know? <clears throat> and was really shocked when I said, they'll be the nannies. <laughs> and, and so when we say things like, have you ever thought about why you really wanted to have children, it's like you've asked a really offensive question. It's, 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 it's sort of like in the old days when we used to have sexual politics and would say, why are you heterosexual? 
And they go, what? But that's just normal. And so the question about motherhood often just causes offence. And then, of course, when you mention the Crouch End kind of tribe and the, um, the sense of entitlement that some, you know, wealthy women have because they have children and you don't, so they have to be first in the queue. It does cause resentment from feminists. Because, is, is this why you were banned from Starbucks? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, because I wrote a column saying all this with my byline in, in Guardian Weekend. And when I walked in, they said, are you that woman that wrote that column? <laughs> so I said all of this in The Guardian. And, uh, and it, you know, obviously the letters editor and the, the, the readers editor were very, very busy that week. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you do find it, it's difficult in as a feminist because, and I'm really sorry, I'm now going to be burned at the stake. <laughs> Those of us that chose not to have children, and I'm talking about through the movement, the 80s and 90s in particular, we did a lot, a lot, lot, lot of childcare and a lot of work. Um, and we were very happy to do that, but we were very well aware that the, the extremely middle class women in the movement had made an active choice to have their children but then would talk about it as though it was something imposed upon them. And we were saying, but you, but you chose to have children. I don't understand. This is a lifestyle choice. What do you mean a lifestyle choice? <laughs> it, it, and what else could it be? So It's perpetuating the human race, <laughs> Julie. <laughs> but you don't do it for that reason, and you know it. Nobody ever thinks I'd better get pregnant because, honestly, fertility rates are really dropping. <laughs> and, <you know. laughs> No one ever gets pregnant for that reason, ever. <laughs> but the idea of motherhood has been turned on its head slightly, hasn't it, by what you were talking about earlier about surrogacy. And mm -hmm. I think there is a point of agreement between you and Mary uh, on that, I would have thought. Definitely. I mean, there are many points of agreement between yeah. me and Julie. I would just like to underline that. Many, many points Absolutely. of agreement. But, one, but one, of the, one of the central ones is the huge admiration that I have for you and your campaigning work on commercial surrogacy, you opened my eyes mm -hmm. to a lot of the absolutely monstrous practices that take place overseas mm -hmm. um, and, and, and have done a lot to really underline, you know, the, the sort of arbitrage of freedom that goes on between different countries where, you know, we get some people get to be freer in terms of their reproductive choices in one country by making women elsewhere less free and, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, exploited in a really profoundly intimate and, in my view, completely disgusting way. Well, uh, I felt yeah. so angry a few months ago on Twitter, you'll be amazed to know, um, when uh, Julie's friend, the editor of Pink News... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's all of our best friends. Did I mention I sued Pink News? <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought I think, we were going to get all the oh, way yeah. through without mentioning... <laughs> without mentioning Benjamin Cohen, who had been railing against all of us as TERFs and, you know, trans women are women, etc., etc., and then announced that he and his husband are on a surrogacy journey. And I just thought, you know, now you know what biological yeah. sex is. Like, you yeah. don't get to opt in and out of it. And guess what? Neither do women. Right. Like Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you want a baby, you have to opt into it, and that's what women's lives are like. It's astonishing how quickly... People Amazing. remember what a woman is Amazing when you need to rent a womb. Exactly. It, it, is, it is interesting what Mary said about capitalism, because I think surrogacy, more than anything except for prostitution, and they're very similar, uh, is the, that interface between capitalism and patriarchy in its rawest, mm. ugliest form. Mm. And that is why I think that, um, that women's bodies, poorer women's bodies, women at the bottom of the social uh, ladder, their bodies are just seen as objects for rich people to mine for their own convenience, mainly men, but not all men, because, of course, with surrogacy, um, you know, I've seen some really ugly exchanges between women about surrogacy and about who owns the womb that the baby is growing in, and the baby is commodified and commercialised. And what's particularly distressing, I think, about, about surrogacy, because I do include altruistic surrogacy in this because it's unfortunately it's a bit like the happy hooker um she's very rare and she also gets damaged through that and we have yet to hear from the children who come of age um through this process but but i've seen the ugliest exchanges where there will be an ownership just this assumption of ownership of a child which i think is always wrong and then the way that the woman's body is seen as just a womb. I mean, her womb is literally traffic. She's a vessel. And the disturbing thing for me in campaigning against this is how much harder it is to convince well-meaning, good liberal people that it is an abhorrence. With, with prostitution and the sex trade, yes, it's a huge vote of contention. It's massively contested with the liberal sink in legalisation. Mm. It's just a service like any other. <laughs> and of course, the feminists or, or some um, very conservative people thinking 
it's wrong for various reasons. But we know what prostitution is. It's a man seeking an orgasm with a person who is not consenting, who does not want sex with him. So it's one-sided sexual pleasure. And all of this, if we allow ourselves to think about that, is, is unpleasant. What do you get at the end of surrogacy? A baby. And people can't help themselves. Look at Otto Lenghi, the Guardian columnist, handsome gay man, <coughs> you know, wealthy gay man, um, who the women who wrote to the Guardian when he was profiled as having been through the surrogacy journey with his partner, they were fawning all over him, writing letters to the Guardian saying, I'll have his next baby. Ooh, isn't he lovely? And just refusing to look beyond. And then from that, of course, it gets framed as gay rights, which means those of us that speak out against it, because gay men are used as a smokescreen, it's mainly heterosexual people and increasingly single heterosexual men that are using surrogacy services. Think about that one. Mm. But we, we are told that we are homophobic if we speak out about it. And it's the same with prostitution. And if you look at the trans ideology, ideology the trans rights activists, most of whom are not even transgender, all of them to a person will support these three things. Mm, mm -hmm. Sex work, mm, mm. right? Big pharma and the hormone and surgery stuff and surrogacy. Now, what do they all have in common, I wonder? Money. Yep. And women's bodies that just don't matter. Mm -hmm. How is it where you are in The Guardian with regards to all of this, Hadley? If we can just... <clears throat> yeah, how's work, Hadley? <laughs> um, I, I'd like to throw that question to my colleagues in The Guardian who are hiding over there, the secret railroad down there. Um, yeah, we spotted you, three of them over there, at least, if not more. Um, well, I haven't been in The Guardian for a few years, um, and I'm just interviewing celebrities. So. <laughs> <laughs> So you can't paint a picture of what it's like to be a, an apostate amongst us? Um, well, I think you can tell probably from the newspaper. It's a very fractious issue um, that um, I am not part of. So you're an outsider? Yeah. 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 I am not contributing to that debate in the Guardian pages. I'm looking forward to seeing your interview with J.K. Rowling soon. Mm. Why hasn't it been in? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting that you do have these sort of similarities, um, and we ask, we, I think we need to draw it to a close slightly, but I wonder if you know, we could think about slightly whether there is a new coalition growing here um, you know, under the umbrella of this one single issue, or, and whether it will hold together, or whether you think that it will... Implode. I think it has um, created more female solidarity. I know that certainly for me over the past few years, um, I now have so many more groups of all female friends um, and, and Julie included, like we've become much closer doing all this. And uh, I think that's been really wonderful. I think it has been, you know, other people call it radicalization. I think it's just awakening a consciousness oh. um, and a reminder of what feminism always was and the female friendships that have been formed. You know, will we agree on every single issue no, but that's fine. I think it has brought feminism back to its grassroots for a lot of us, and that is really important. I, I absolutely think there's, I mean, there's so much more scope for corporate. I mean, feminism, the women's movement, since it started with Mary Wollstonecraft, has always been fractious. There have always been disagreements within it, you know, because people are coming from different places. 
And I don't think, I'm, I'm not sure that there is such a thing as a universally feminist set of policies because so much of it depends on your context. Um, and and we, can, we can just roll with that um, and, and, and come together on the things that really matter. And for so many of us right now, the, the issues that really matter, I think, are the ones that Julie's already named, um, the commercialization, that, that turn on the commercialization of particularly of women's bodies, but really the monetization of bodies mm. and the, the reordering of our humanity at the most fundamental cellular level to, to the world of big business. You know, because fundamentally that's what this is about. It's a wedge issue, for a, in, in my view, towards a kind of transhumanist attitude that just says we're, we're, we're within our rights to remodel <coughs> our bodies as we see fit. You know, we're entitled to treat all of, all of what a human is as plastic resources to be strip mined or to be monetized or to be, or to be reconfigured however we like. And that in fact what we need to do is deregulate the idea of what people are. And let's start with what women are. I mean, we'll deregulate that first, and if we can if we can get people to agree to that, we'll just deregulate what people are, and then it's and, and then it'll be just like the big bang was when they deregulated finance in the 80s. Except it'll be our bodies. So I'm really not up for that, and I think it's well beyond just you know it's well you know liberal feminists or radical feminists or whatever whatever the hell kind of feminist I am. Plus you know a whole <coughs> load of other of a whole load of other constituencies are quite not keen on that programs, and and I, I to me that's something we we really can unite around. If feminism needs to get to the women that think they don't need it, that's, that's the really urgent task. Yes, coalitions are great. And we couldn't have done the work that we've done over the years without it. I recall back in the 1980s when the anarchists and the hard leftists would not join with us in protesting pornography because of its misogyny. Um, and so we just said to them, animals are abused in it. And they went, right, come <laughs> And there they were, down at the pawn shops with us, and then we helped them glue up the fur coat shops later on the evening. <laughs> and, and that's... We, ha we have to work across, across broad bases. I worry um, about some of the women in the US that are right-wing, that seem to not like trans people because they also don't like lesbians or gays, mm. that are deeply conservative in a really not acceptable way, that are Trump supporters, that have this as a single issue, where they just shout about the trans and they'll go to the Heritage Foundation um, and take uh, an invitation from the, the worst kind of think tank uh, that also is looking to find ways to recriminalise abortion. That worries me greatly. They're not my allies. Um, so I won't join with them because they don't like the trans because I could not give a damn about transgender people uh, who should just be left alone to live their lives. As I said at the beginning, it's about our rights mm -hmm. that are being erased. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that we can work across differences without question. And one of the really good things in the last few years since this issue has become really mainstream is making really good friends with women and some men who understand and have come out as decent human beings and with a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. Everybody that speaks up about this has so much to lose. You know, the treatment of Hadley and other colleagues, feminist colleagues, in the media has been appalling. And you really do think to yourself, okay, when we've won this battle, I want the women who've only fought on the trans stuff to come and help us with the rape and domestic murder and stuff, because what else will they be doing? But we'll be carry on, carrying on doing this because we understand it's about women's liberation and not just a single issue. Great. Um, at that point, I think we should throw it open to the room. Hi, um, I wanted to ask Hadley, is this on, is this working? Mm -hmm. um, I've been so disappointed with The Guardian 
<laughs> like, you finally got a female editor, and she's just terrified of the trans lobby, it seems to me. And I used to love The Guardian read it several times a day, and now I, I can't even click on the site. How... How do you manage to work there? <laughs> <laughs> and look, what happened to Suzanne Moore? How, you know, how yep. do you feel about that? And have um, you supported her within the Guardian? Yep. And is is everybody against her, or is actually it's just a few loonies? <laughs> uh, thank you for the question. I think Suzanne might be here. She was. Well, she she couldn't. Oh, she come couldn't in come. Then. Sorry. Um, it has been, I, I don't think I'm revealing anything when I say it's been very hard. I mean, we're not going to make this into an evening about me and my work. Um, uh, I've been at The Guardian for 22 years, and it has been very hard over the past seven or so years to feel very out of step within the, the organization and the newspaper that I, this is the only place I've ever worked. Um, I, so, yeah, I would say it's been very hard. When, what happened to Suzanne happened. I did stand up for her in the office. Um, I was devastated when she left. Um, I've been devastated by a lot of people who've left. You know, it's been it's sad when Gary Young left too. Um, and um, yeah, this is, uh, it's not an issue. Let's put it this way. It's an issue I'm very cognizant of. Could I ask the panel, what's their opinion of the levels of feminism in the House of Commons? Because uh -huh. I feel like huh. there's a lot of women, but I don't. I don't know, there's a few exceptions. Just interested. Well, Nadine, Doris likes a drink, doesn't she? <laughs> um, That's a hard one. I can't, I can't speak for... I'm not... I, I, with the disclaimer that I'm not really a Westminster, um, follow, Westminster news junkie, uh, my sense of um, feminism in the Houses of Parliament is that there are lots of reflexive liberal feminists who will think about women's interests largely in terms of more free childcare. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how many, I, I think the subset which are thinking perhaps slightly more broadly about what constitute women's interests is, is perhaps smaller, but they're, but they're not non-existent. And certainly, you know, it's very clear that there are, there are women and also men who are, who are thinking very concretely about the, the gender identity um, activism, which is now rife. Some of them are just reflexively going for the idea that, you know, we can all just be whatever we want because it worked, it worked fine in my university, lose so it should be fine for everyone else, including prisons. Um, but, 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 but not all of them. It's, it could be better, bluntly. What were we talking about? Um, yeah, um, I mean, if you think about who's the most famous woman in modern parliament, it was Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher is not a feminist, obviously. She was entirely self-serving. And it seems to me that a lot of the women in parliament are sort of similar in a way. I do think Twitter is the worst thing that could have happened to politics. I think there are too <laughs> yeah. many MPs who care too much about Twitter. What gets them likes on Twitter's, Twitter? Are they famous on Twitter? Blah, blah, blah. Um, there's been a lot of publicity around Stella Creasy's campaign, um, which I find distinctly unimpressive. Mm -hmm. I can't 
imagine the thinking that goes through your head after you've had a baby to think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to campaign for better childcare provisions for probably the most privileged, tiny group of women in the country, yep. women <laughs> MPs who get full pay for six months. This kind months, of illustrates what I'm saying. And subsidized yeah. nursery care in the yeah. freaking office place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that is a lot more than I ever got. Um, while, while apparently being unable to define what a woman is. Yes. Well, yes. St- well, refusing to still define what a woman is yep. on Mumsnet today, I saw. Um, but still complaining about how her own biology is stifling her life. Um, so I find it frustrating. I'm frustrated with a lot of the labor women for not stepping up about the mm-hmm. gender movement. Yep. I've been frustrated with people like Jess Phillips, who I respect on lots of other things, particularly rape shelters. I'm surprised that she doesn't speak up more about this stuff. Um, obviously horrified at Keir Starmer, who apparently has no concept of female biology. Um, it's not as bad as the Democrats. I say this as an American, you know, Joe Biden signing away women's sport without even a second glance. Um, or California just, you know, totally doing over female prisoners. Um, but uh, the left in America and Britain has got to get itself together on this mm. gender issue, basically. Do you agree, mm-hmm. do you? I do agree. And... Rosie Duffield is a feminist. She's a yeah. principled feminist. Yeah. And she's held up as a warning to other women in Parliament. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And unfortunately, um, there's not enough courage by no. a long chalk. No. They're supposed to serve us, and in fact, they're serving themselves. They're serving a tiny minority of people on Twitter. I just wish all mm-hmm. journalists and politicians would remember Twitter is, is not representative of real life. Mm-hmm. It's like really not representative of real life. Twitter thought Corbyn would win. It thought Bernie Sanders would win. Well, look right. how that turned out. And this sort of catering to the views of this tiny view on Twitter is, I think, what's really escalated the gender issue. Obviously, America has massively contributed to that, and that's because American healthcare has so jumped onto it because they've realized how much money there is in this, particularly in regards to children. Um, but the way MPs are so scared of upsetting left-wing people with massive followings on Twitter is just totally tilting and distorting the politics of this country. Mm-hmm. Why is most of mainstream media fawning over or celebrating gender ideology, and how can we change this? Um, I think there is a great fear um, in the media, and I don't just mean in the UK. You see it a lot in the US, too, of going against what the youth are saying. Um, there's this idea that the youth are on the quote-unquote right side of history. Um, and also there is, you know, there's more young people working in media organizations from the tech side um, who aren't necessarily journalists, who aren't journalists, who work in the digital department, um, who come from the tech world and have a much more libertarian view of gender and uh, sex roles, I guess, is the best way to put it. I don't mean they're, you know polyamorous or whatever, but they may well be. But they have a much more, they have a very different view of uh, these kinds of things. And they are also dictating, in some cases, the media lines. We hear about that kind of thing at the New York Times and all those kinds of organizations. Um, and also, uh, newspapers are now very dependent on online revenue. And it's young people who are online. They don't care anymore about paper subscriptions, and it's older people who have paper subscriptions, which is why you have this weird divide of the left-wing press going much more for the gender ideology because they are more for young people and they're online. The right-wing press can be a bit more cautious because their readers are older and they tend to have subscriptions. Um, so therefore, we have this situation where the right-wing press acknowledges that acknowledges science and that biology exists, and the left-wing press is kind of bound up in ideology. Um, this question from Tilly is... I'm confused about the arguments not to criminalize misogyny. It seems to me obviously the right thing to do. Why is it questioned? 
oh, we must not make misogyny a hate crime. In fact, let's get rid of all the hate crime legislation. It's, yeah. it's outrageous. No. I mean, there, there, is, there are several reasons, and there's a, there's a really brilliant lawyer in the room, Harriet Wistrich, <laughs> right over there, who... Woo! Um, <laughs> and by the way, I'm always cleaning up her muesli crumbs. <laughs> but imagine if we actually made misogyny a hate crime. Imagine how many more prisons we'd have to build. Imagine how many arrests there would have to be. How, who would define misogyny? Mm. Who, who would be seen as, as, as the um, correct person? Would it be a trans woman um, having me arrested for misogyny because I asked about their inclusion in a women-only space? What, how, how would we define it? Because I don't think the vast majority of people even know what misogyny actually is. The police would never mm, respond yeah. to this. <laughs> and if you look at other hate crime legislation, which has been a disaster. So, for example, you have hate crime, um, racist hate crime, where white people use it against black people, where we're told that if a black person experiences something as racist, we have to take that word. What on earth does that even mean in the law? We need to rigorously apply the law as it stands. There are so many crimes that police are not even arresting for before we even start thinking about misogyny as a hate crime. Mm -hmm. So here's one example. At the moment, um, we know that the majority of rapes and sexual assaults aren't reported to police. Of those that are reported, those that end in a conviction is under 1%. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think 99% of women are lying or do you think that we've got a huge problem with our criminal justice system actually implementing these laws? It must not be a quick fix solution to those in Parliament that think it sounds good and it'll look good on their sheet. And it's reminding me of your woman who first decided when she was Minister for Women that the first thing she would do is bring in self-ID as, mm. as a Maria Miller. It's one of those things that costs nothing, they think, mm -hmm. and will instantly have the women saying, aren't you clever? But the police won't arrest anyone, there'll be no investigations and there'll be no training. Oh yeah, and misandry. <laughs> so I would be arrested three times tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Sally, you started off by asking everyone on the, the panel what feminism meant to, to them individually. And I'd I'd like to ask what sort of going on from that you think that feminism can mean more broadly because and the reason why I'm asking this is because when I first became active in women's politics it was very clear in a way what it stood for there were clear demands of the women's liberation movement that collectively we thought would bring people together and i just wonder now if one of the problems is that is that we have quite an atomized view of politics based on what we individually find to be offensive and and a problem so for example for me my big thing is women's inability to be able to control their fertility and attacks that the government are making that prevent women from um, dis making decisions about their own pregnancy. Um, on the other hand, you know, 
Julie's very concerned about the surrogacy issues. I'm not very concerned about men. I'm much more concerned about the absence of childcare. There's a whole load of various different things and how do we bring those together and make it something that is a social movement? I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, we live in an age when people are so concerned about their identity and so desperately want an identity and are desperately looking around for something to tell them what they are and who they should be. And feminism has become slightly unfashionable. Well, feminism can give you your identity. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you tick every box in it. Um, it means that we all have, there's like a common denominator of various experiences uh, and we can all branch off from that. I mean, that's what I have found, certainly over the past uh, six or seven years since um, I have felt more ostracized from the groups that I thought I belonged to. And having groups of female friends, you know, some of them straight, some of them not, some with children, some not, some, you know, this, some that, you know, all sorts of different experiences. But we have a shared, um, a shared experience, which is being women and understanding what each other's fears are, understanding what each other's needs are and supporting each other in that, for it not to be a competition. Um, and I, I wish more people would take their identity from that mm -hmm. because that is something you don't get to identify out of, which is your female experience. One final question from our Zoom audience, from Alex Hamilton. Is it possible that the root of many young women's disgust of motherhood is a profound fear of the responsibility of motherhood, especially the asymmetry in the early years in bringing up a child, and that fear materializes itself in denigration or dismissal of motherhood in yes. an unconscious manner? Yes. Yes, possibly. I think it's also that you really can't underestimate young women's fear of their own bodies and their disgust mm -hmm. by their own bodies. Um, and this idea that their body is just going to become a thing that, you know, spews forth this baby out of their vagina and their, their breasts will no longer be something that's pretty or, you know, sexy that, that's there to be looked at. Their body becomes something that's fed off of, you know, all these kinds of things. Women are told to be pretty, to be looked at, to be quiet, to be, you know, amenable. And childbirth kind of takes all that away and also takes away your autonomy. You're just there to feed this baby. I mean, there's nothing sexy about it. There's nothing cool about it. Um, it's completely unladylike. Um, women have always had a disgust by their own bodies. I, you know, that's why there's so much cutting. That's why there's so many eating disorders. That's why girls in the Middle Ages used to starve themselves. And I think this is another form of, for some, um, of disgust with their own bodies. As a 59-year-old bloke Whoa. <laughs> who has daughters and a wife, um, it's been my impression over the years that feminism as a movement has not really celebrated and admired and been hugely supportive of womanhood in terms of having children, of actually mm -hmm. creating families mm -hmm. and caring for them. Mm -hmm. It's tended to focus on, quite rightly, you know, economic independence and power and strength and, uh, and all that. But this is just my observation, you know, as an ordinary guy. It hasn't really celebrated the thing that is uniquely female mm -hmm. of having children. And I just wonder if the future of feminism should be to acknowledge and to really, you know, support the idea of women having children and bringing them up. I think Julie might say... Well, yes, yeah. yes, except in Crouch End, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, no, but more seriously, um, that's yes and no. 
Um, sec, the, the feminism since the 1960s, I would say, definitely skews in the direction you describe. But if you go back to the 19th century, actually, there's a real, you, you can see all the, way, all the way back through the 19th century in you know, discussions on, the, on women's rights and, and women's situation, there's this real tension between people who are arguing from you know, wanting to, a, a defense of care and the family and people who are arguing from you know, women's interests lying more in freedom and autonomy. And that, that tension is there really for the first 150 years of arguments about, about women's, women's rights under, um, under industrial capitalism. And it's only really the, from the 1960s onwards that it's, it's, it, it's turned decisively um, away from taking an interest in you know, interdependence and relationality and more towards, more towards individual empowerment. And I mean, we could go into the whys and the wherefores of that, but, it, but I, I would just say the history of it is much richer than you might imagine. And, you know, and I, I, in my own work, I'm very interested in recovering some of those older conversations to see whether there's something we can learn from them for, in terms of where we are now, except in Crouch End, obviously. Um, <laughs> but well, I, um, yeah, of in, 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 terms of, in terms of where we go next, um, potentially, yes. But, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be a difficult conversation to open. In, in the context of where we are now. Yes, yes, and it will be difficult. But it has, it's a, it's a nice it idea, been, isn't it? Well, it has to be part of it. That is the experience of so many women's lives, the majority of women's lives. And you're right. I think motherhood has been ignored. I mean, you look at America, which thinks of itself as the bastion of feminism, you know, Gloria Stein and Betty Friedan. And yet, where's the, you know, federally mandated paid maternity leave? You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. completely disgraceful. And I am an American. And when I see American feminists, you know, hectoring British ones on Twitter and calling them <laughs> Turf Island, you just think, can you perhaps sort out your maternity leave before you start lecturing Britain? And your abortion. And your abortion laws. laws. Uh, and yes, it is a problem, obviously, because so much of feminism has been bound up with abortion. And this is going to be another problem with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And then the celebration of motherhood then looks like it's against um, yeah. abortion. But... You know, I don't, I've always hated the whole choice feminism thing, but feminism, of course, should be about that choice. Yes. You know, those who choose to have children, those who choose not to have children, and to encompass both of them, because those are both uniquely female experiences. You know, it's women who get to do that. And, and women uh, have babies. Lots more women have babies than women that don't. Mm. Um, and I think that there is a massive stigmatization of women that choose not to have children. There's still huge amounts of pressure on women to have children. And that, to me, is a really important issue. Yes, maternity leave at every level, not just for those women in highly paid tenured jobs. Yes, childcare available for all women. But absolutely no, I don't think we need any more celebration of motherhood. I think what we need is a liberation um, of mothers from domestic drudgery and from being trapped within that situation if they don't want to be. Julie, you made a throwaway comment earlier about you need a new name for liberal feminists. I'd go with fake feminists, by the way. But yeah. And we all know the countless debates about redefining women and chest feeders and all this bullshit, <laughs> quite frankly. I'm wondering how important you all think, though, these little forest fires over language... Uh, whether they're a distraction from the real issues, the coalface stuff, or whether if we lose the language, then we're going to lose the bigger mm. battles. Um, language is really important. It's crucial. And feminists have always said this. There was a, a piece in the um, 
the in the Observer this weekend, um, that thankfully um, one of the feminists at the Observer pointed out, where the term 13-year-old sex workers mm. was used. Now, that is because there's been an editorial decision that has been, this, this fight has been raging since I wrote about the Ipswich murders back in 2006, about use of the term sex work, for example. And I'm taking it away from the trans thing because I think we've spoken quite a lot about that. But when I was doing a report on the Ipswich murders of the five prostituted women, an email from the reader's editor came around to all of us that had written features, comments, investigations, whatever, and said, look, we need to get this unified because some of you are talking about... Um, sex workers, some of you, me, talking about prostituted women, um, where it was relevant. <coughs> some have used this term, some use prostitute. What should we do? And I just replied and said, how about we just say women? Because clearly um, what they were angling for was to introduce this, what they thought was a dignified term for prostituted women, which gives a total and utter false picture mm. of what happens to the vast majority mm. of, of women, men, children, children in, in the sex trade. And again, to argue that you can't apply the term sex worker because, only because the child is underage is to suggest that it's fine when she reaches 18 that we use the term sex work. Similarly, when we use clients for punters, where we use brothel owners for pimps, and that applies across, what, what was I hearing? Where people say real rape, yeah, but it's not real mm. rape, is it? Yeah. Or they talk about grooming gangs when they mean children being raped and prostituted. Language is totally crucial. What I think we shouldn't do is fight a battle only on the language front. If you're fighting about language, it has to be because it's describing something that you are concerned about and that you're doing something about. I think the language is interesting because it does kind of reveal it does reveal the misogyny that underlies a lot of the gender ideology. So you know, women are, you know, uterus havers and pregnant people, but it's still men go get your yeah. prostates checked. Like that is really erasure of women. Um, and I think talking about pregnant people and chest feeding is also erasure of women. It's taking, you know, taking the mums out of the picture. Um, I don't think it's the most important thing, but I think it gives a real insight into what's going on with a lot of the gender ideology. Mary, how do you feel about the use of language? I agree with Julie and Hadley. I think it's it's not it's not the thing itself but you know we most of us live in a sort of disembodied discursive world a lot of the time and in in that world that that is that is the terrain that a lot of this stuff is to a very significant extent being fought on and when when we when you talk about you know uterus havers or chest feeders or birthing bodies um in effect what it does cumulatively is turn people into parts um which again you know tills the ground for, the, for the, the deregulation of bodies, the deregulation of humans, and the commercialization of, of what we are as people. Um, you know, it's, it, it's all grist to the same transhumanist mill. It's all grist to the same, um, the, 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 the same, the same overall belief that, that people can be disassembled, turned into parts, and reorganized, you know, according to the whims of mad scientists or teenagers, teenagers who spend too much time online, or whatever it is. Um, it's we, we have to fight that battle. We have to we, we have to defend the human in in language as well as in reality. It's also like what Julie was saying about how theory is fine to a certain point. It also keeps this argument very much in theory because 
the, the more the language contracts, the fewer the people can get involved mm. in this discussion because only, you know, it's only the chosen few who know what this week's code words are. Yep. And if you've fallen behind yep. and you say the wrong word, then you're cast and out. And that's also yeah. a, class, there's a, there's a class element. Absolutely. And it's you know, only the it's very only online. The, it's like knowing yeah, which fork to use. Completely. It, it is, it is literally the 21st century of knowing which fork to it is, use. It, and which, which it is today, it was fine this week, but now it's not fine this week. And I think it is a way of really restricting who is talking about this and who is legislating about it. Mm -hmm. And it's a great way of making sure that working class women are never included in the conversation or working class men. Because all you have to do is slip up once and that's and it. And then you're it. Yeah. Well, working class women. Men can generally get by. <laughs> well, I think that sort of final comment proved the point of the whole debate, didn't it? <laughs> that there are points of commonality and that we can take feminism forward. Um, and we can continue the conversation, I think, in the bar, possibly. but. I'd like to thank these three very courageous women. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.